they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Kids, you were dismissed to learn about Jesus. And let's continue to focus on this amazing word, the word of the Lord from Psalm 23 this morning. Psalm 23 is, in fact, the most recited and memorized sacred text in the world. Did you know that? Of all the other religions in Christianity, this is it. Of course, you've probably heard this psalm before. You probably have it hanging somewhere in your house or had it printed on a card at some point. Uh, But it's not just a hallmark greeting. This is the Word of God. This is a strong and solid promise for God's people that God will provide for us, that God will protect us, and that God will be present with us when we get cancer. When a bullet enters our body, when we are divorced or depressed or discouraged, when we're unemployed, when we sin in all the sorts of ways that we do, when we're students preparing for the big exam, when we are soldiers deploying for war, when we are mothers going into labor or getting a late night call that they would never want, this is a reality for us. The Lord is my shepherd is a song or a prayer of King David of dependence on this truth that the Lord is our provider. In the Hebrew, Yahweh Yireh, or Jehovah Jireh, as you might know it. Yahweh Yireh, the Lord provides for us. And we can trust that. And what we have here in the psalm is a sandwich of hope. Because the front end and the back end are written in the third person. It's about God. Yahweh, you are my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The middle of it, verse 4, is addressed to God, a prayer to God. You are with me. And then the end of it, verse 6, once again in the third person, it's about the Lord. He follows us all the days of his life. We dwell in his house forever. The sandwich of hope. Provision, protection, and his presence with us always. Let's look at this very familiar psalm. And I'm going to pray once again that God would help us to see it with fresh understanding. Father, would you now open our eyes, shepherd our hearts towards the truth and into your grace and comfort. Lord, help us to realize that we're sheep. We are not wolves. We shouldn't be acting like wolves. We're not strong and brilliant. We are weak and lowly. We need you for all things. So help us, good shepherd, help us, Lord Jesus Christ, to now trust in you in real ways, not just pretending or saying, what a nice psalm that was this morning. Let us cry out for what we need here, the truth and reality that you alone can give us comfort and satisfaction. You alone are God and you alone are King and you alone can be shepherd. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this psalm opens up with this statement of God will provide. He is my shepherd. Provision. The shepherd. The shepherd is the one that leads the sheep, of course. But this shepherd also owns the land. He owns all the earth, of course. So you never have the trouble of the shepherd accidentally trespassing on someone else's property. 
feeding and grazing his sheep somewhere where he's going to get in trouble. The whole earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, Psalm, what, says? You know that one? The earth is the Lord and everything in it. You know that Psalm? 24. He owns, he's not only the shepherd, he's the king of creation. So our shepherd is a king. That's very important that you don't forget that. It's not just a tender, gentle, pastoral figure who's wandering around with a robe on and a staff. He's the king. Amen. He's powerful. He is the ruler and the owner of all things. And, and Psalm 23 gives us confidence in our king. But we kind of miss how important this psalm is if we don't read Psalm 22 first. We're not going to take the time to read Psalm 22 now, but I know you're familiar with it because Jesus himself quoted Psalm 22 when he was hanging on the cross. Do you remember this? Jesus quotes Psalm 22, which comes, of course, before Psalm 23, when he says in some of his final words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness of the valley of the shadow of death is what Jesus himself experienced quoting Psalm 22. Before the words of Psalm 23 could be on his lips, you restore my soul. Or literally, just you restore my life. Before the resurrection of Jesus, he had to go through the dark valley of death. He had to go through Psalm 22 before Psalm 23. And let me just say, all of us do. You're not going to be impressed with Psalm 23 if life is easy. You won't need a shepherd and a helper and a shield you just say, I got it, I'm good. Only when God brings you through the dark times, the pain and the burdens and the stress, that you know you need someone to lift that burden, to give you his life. That's why we read Psalm 22 in order before Psalm 23. And there is an order to the Psalms. You may not always see an easy uh, logical progression, but I recommend that you, you try to see the thematic uh, development as the Psalms progress. Now, the shepherd was more than just leading sheep around. David, who wrote the psalm, was, was a shepherd, of course. He was a young shepherd boy. Remember David leading the sheep and then slingshot to the head of the giant, Goliath, and then became king of Israel after Saul. So he was a shepherd who became a king, and he, he wrote about his shepherding in some of the psalms. He knew what it meant to lead not only the sheep, but also God's people. But, of course, David was frail. He was a man. He was not perfect, and he... He committed adultery, he committed murder, he was not strong with disciplining his children, and that got out of hand. And so when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, you know what he's saying? He's saying, don't look at me, people, because I'm not going to be the perfect shepherd for you. I might be the king that God has set in charge of this entire nation, but I'm not that. Only God is all that. And he alone will fulfill your longings and my longings to be led and fed perfectly. To satisfy your soul, I can't do that. I'm imperfect. But he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Look to the Lord with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now, does that mean that we're Buddhist and we don't have any desires? We don't want anything? Like, I don't want ice cream. No, I want ice cream often, okay? I have strong desires. The Bible says we have desires and we should cultivate strong desires for the Lord. So what does it mean that we don't want anything? It means we're so content we're not restless? Yes, probably so. Does it mean we don't complain? Yes. Now, I mean, I, I understand that that's what we're supposed to do, but I, for one, I complain. I'm not going to point any fingers to any children in this room, but I know other people that complain too on a regular basis. I know that what God says is you don't have to want anything because you really don't lack anything that you need. 
Are you anxious about something you don't have? I know you are. I mean, I know I am. Let's just be honest. Are you anxious about something that you don't have? Probably so. Yeah. And if you're not today, then you probably will be later. Yeah. God says, you don't have to be anxious. I'm not going to hold out on you. Amen. You, got, you got everything you need. Remember what 2 Peter chapter 1 says, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. His divine power has granted us everything we need for life and godliness. Amen. According to the knowledge of Christ who has called us by his own power and glory. Amen. Jesus has power and glory. He knows exactly what we need. And according to that power and wisdom, he gives us everything we need. We don't lack a thing that we need. Amen. We don't get everything we want. We just have everything we need. That's why Paul said in Philippians 4:11, I've learned the secret. This is not easy. This is not something we just are born knowing. They don't even teach us in kindergarten. I mean, they tried to teach me this in kindergarten. I didn't get that lesson. It's only a lesson that Christ can teach me. I've learned the secret, Paul says, of being content in any and every situation. Whether hungry or well-fed, high or low, he says, I'm content. I'm okay because I know that God will not hold back. He gives me everything I need. I do not want. The Lord's my shepherd. I heard a uh, seminar from the Legacy Conference that some of you guys went to this week. I didn't go, but I, uh, I was in Texas for a few days, and I heard on a podcast just yesterday one of the speakers who led one of the seminars, and his name is Jamar Tisby, a uh, brother that I really respect a lot. He went to the same seminary, and he's now leading the Reformed African American Network in the United States. It's a huge and growing network of folks that believe in uh, good theology and, and putting it in the context of the African-American church experience. I've learned so much from these guys. Uh, he's like a hero of mine. And he gave this uh, lecture just a few days ago at Legacy. And, and he said in this lecture on um, justice in the civil rights movement, he made this statement. He said, America's original sin was not just racism, which it was. But he says deeper than that, it was, anybody want to guess? What's the deeper sin behind racism underneath slavery? He said it's greed. Greed. Not being happy with what you have. Wanting more. Wanting what someone else has. Not wanting them to get ahead. And if they do, you're going to undermine it, sabotage it, try to take it away. Greed is what our country was built on. Unbridled capitalism at the expense of someone else. Oppressing another person because of their skin color or their country of origin just because they didn't have the power to break chains with their bare hands? Greed. Now, we haven't escaped this uh, root desire now that we've you know, put a couple hundred years behind us in slavery in America. We, we still all carry this root of greed in our hearts, don't we? Yeah. Uh, wanting something that you really shouldn't have, wanting somebody else's stuff that they already have. Greed continues to make us Slaves to material things, property, and to treat other people like property. Even though we don't have slaves right now, we treat other people like property if we don't get what we want. So the, the shepherd gives us what we need, and he, he teaches us to pray this and really mean it. I will not want, because you alone are my king and my master, my shepherd. Not greed, not materialism, not my own agenda. And so he, he teaches me to pray this, and then he makes me lie down in green pastures. Amen. Sabbath rest. Not easy. Not easy. 
taking time out of your work and coming to worship God's people, resting, taking a break from your labors, and not expecting other people to work for you like that as well. We're driven people. We're busy. We're slaves of work and distraction. But the Good Shepherd cares about us enough to say, stop. Just work six days. Okay, now, some of you don't work six days. Some of you maybe work like one or two days. I don't know exactly what your work schedule is like, but he says, work six days. That's the commandment, the fourth commandment. And then on that seventh day, as we practice as Christians the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week, we stop, we rest, we worship. We focus on each other, relationships. Philip Keller wrote a book called A Shepherd's View of Psalm 23. He's a shepherd here in the Northwest in America. And he wrote chapter after chapter of insights of how a shepherd would read Psalm 23 with insights about the animals themselves and the dynamics of the shepherd and the climate and the landscape and all these things. And he says this, this is the thing about sheep. It's almost impossible for them to be made to lie down unless four things are true. All right? Check this out. Number one, for a sheep to lie down, they must be free of all fear. You're not going to get a sheep to lie down if there's a wolf prowling nearby or thunder booming over the plains. If there's a rock tumbling down the mountainside, they're going to run. They're not going to lie down if they're afraid of anything. Number two, if the sheep are tormented by flies or parasites, they will not lie down. They will run around rolling, scratching. They will fall off of a cliff. They will get themselves into such a tizzy trying to get away from pests like this that they may actually not be able to right themselves back on their legs. And sometimes the sheep work up such a foamy mouth and like their insides begin to get shaken like a two liter of soda and they can actually die because they're so bothered by the annoying things of life. Does that sound familiar? You know anybody like that? They're so annoyed at life, they, they can hardly survive. Sheep will not lie down if they're being tormented by their circumstances. Number three, sheep will not lie down as long as they feel that they need food still. Now, they, they might be full, but they, if they feel that they need food, they're not going to lay down. If they're hungry. You have to satisfy the sheep's hunger for it to rest. Number four, I'm going to spend a little more time on this one. The sheep will not lie down unless they are free from friction and conflict with other sheep. To me, this is the most surprising one. I didn't expect it. I wouldn't have thought of that reading Psalm 23. But this is a shepherd's view of Psalm 23. It says, sheep won't lie down when there's conflict between them. Now, we know that in most animal groups, there's an order of dominance established. Like the, the chickens, what do they do? They peck each other. You know, you can be hen-pecked. There's the pecking order, right? The big, strong chicken chases all the ones around the yard. Come see us tomorrow night at Ben and Allie's house, if you don't believe me. They have a little farm in their backyard right here in Woodlawn. Yeah, it's true. The sheep are the same way. They have a pecking order, or it's called a budding order, because they butt heads. And usually it's an old, dominant, aggressive uh, ewe, a, a female sheep, who butts and pushes and you know, puts her shoulder into other sheep and gets them away from the best grass where she wants to graze. She runs them away. And then all the other sheep follow that example. All the other sheep start butting each other and finding their hierarchy. They order themselves up and line up in order, the strongest to the weakest. That's what sheep do. And they are not going to lay down and rest if there's conflict among them. They're going to be running away from each other and chasing each other. Ezekiel 34, which we read earlier as our call to worship, I'll read a couple portions of that again, says this, I will feed my flock, says the Lord God, and I will cause them to lie down. Now what's God up against when he feeds us and has to cause us to lie down? Well listen, here's the conflict going on in our lives. I will seek that which was lost. Okay, we wander off the path, we're lost. I'll bring again that which was driven away. See, 
a sheep has driven away another, and he's going to go reclaim the sheep. Bring it back and lay it down. Amen. I will bind up that which was broken. I will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with justice. God does not tolerate conflict, bullying, aggressive tactics. He says, I'm going to bring back the weak and I'm going to bind them up. I'm going to heal them. I'm going to lay them down. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, thus says the Lord God unto them, Behold, even I, I will judge between the fat sheep and between the lean sheep. You know, the big strong ones and the little scrawny ones. I'm going to judge between them because you have thrust aside with your shoulder and pushed all the disease away with your horns till you scattered them abroad and therefore I will save my flock and they shall no longer be a prey. I will set up one shepherd, my servant. He will feed them and lead them and be their shepherd. My servant David will be prince among them. Now he wasn't talking about King David because King David's already dead by the time Ezekiel was written. Who's he talking about? You got it. Of course. Who else would it be? Jesus, the son of David, the true David, the true king, the true shepherd, the good shepherd. He says, I will set up one shepherd, and he's going to do all these things. He's going to bind up the sick, gather in the lost. You know, Jesus, there's 99 sheep right here, where they're supposed to be, right here in the church, right here in the little pen that he set up, right here in his, his flock. And there's one sheep that wandered away, or that got driven away maybe, chased away even. Maybe some Christians drove that sheep out of the church and said, we don't want you here. What does he do? He goes after that one sheep and he reclaims, he puts it on his shoulders, he brings it home, restores that sheep's life to where it should be. God, the good shepherd, lays us down. Where does he lay us down? In green pastures. Green pastures. Israel is not known for its green pastures. I've been there. Not a lot of green pastures there. Promise. I was in El Paso, Texas this week. Not a lot of green pastures there either. Right across the border from Juarez, Mexico. Juarez, Mexico. I can see it from my hotel room. Dry. Just like Israel with a lot of rocks, a lot of stones. It's only grassy in certain places and seasonally. Here and there, hit or miss. But the shepherd knows where to find the sweet spot. He knows where to take the sheep. He has a little migration pattern. He takes them here, and then when that's done, he takes them there. And he takes them to all the places where he will feed them in these green pastures, in the middle of the harshest wilderness. He knows where to give and how to give life-giving support. That's our God. I know you look around Woodlawn, and you're like, wow, I don't see a lot of um, green pastures. I see a building that was burned down last week, and it's now just a big cavernous hole in the ground where Harold's used to be. See a lot of boarded up homes, see a lot of trash, see a lot of broken concrete, broken homes, broken lives. I see that. But you know, God says, I can find a place for you where you will lay down and I will feed you in green pastures, right here in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of Chicago. A place of beauty, a place of nourishment, a place of rest. Feel like you need some of that? I do. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I need it. You do too. Amen. My grandfather used to raise horses, and we had about five acres out in the country in Louisiana where I grew up. And we had a couple horses that he actually he got them all for free somehow. Like he won them, and then like he bred another horse, and that was a free breeding. You know, free breeding. Who knew breeding cost money? But anyway, free breeding. So we had two horses. We didn't pay anything for them, but there they were. And you know what my grandfather would do? He took the last two acres of our property, like the last third back half of the, the property, and he, he planted new grass seed. We already had grass. It was fine as far as I could tell. It was just grass. 
Like, don't horses just eat grass? No, he had to plant Bermuda grass. Bermuda grass. Some, somehow this was the best, you know. It was the greenest, the most lush grass. And my grandfather was so funny, he would drive his truck down the country lanes where we lived, and he would go so slow. We'd have like a, a train of cars behind us just honking their horns, and he's just driving. You know what he was doing most of the time? He was looking at other people's grass. Look at that. Hey, look at that field over there, huh? Look at that field of Bermuda grass. He's from New Orleans, you know, so he had that New Orleans accent. Hey, Brad, look at that. Look how, look at that Bermuda grass. It's got to be Bermuda, Bermuda grass over there, too, you know? Like, I don't care about grass. I really don't. And none of these people do either. You're the only person that wants to slow down and actually stop in the middle of the road and look at other people's grass. You know, the grass is always greener, we say, on the other side. And he really believed it, and he planted it. He planted the greener grass, and... I guess the horses enjoyed it more. They spent a lot of time in that back pasture. And that's what God loves to do. He, he wants to take us to the greenest pastures. He doesn't want us to be satisfied with just the ordinary things in the world. I know you, you get a lot of entertainment value from the world. I know you, you, you get a lot of stuff from the world. You get a lot of needs met. God says, I have something so much better for you. And I get really frustrated when people read the Bible and they just act like it's the most boring thing, and they just read it with this boring, tired voice. Eh, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want this. Skim, skim read it, speed read it, and it's done, and we go on with our day. No, as we've been talking about in the Psalms, we should be chewing on the Word of God like grass, like a sheep chews that grass, like a cow chewing its cud. Meditating means just chewing it over and over, and I'm sorry, Shannon, but even making sound effects. Mmm, I love to make sound effects when I chew good food. It drives my life crazy, but just chew it up, enjoy it, rest in it, be fed and nourished by it. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside what, folks? Still waters. Still waters. Psalm 46, which Ben is going to preach in a few weeks, talks about raging waters, rushing rivers, dangerous places. There's a place in Colorado that I visited when I was a kid called Cripple Creek. Called Cripple Creek because when animals went to get water from the creek, it broke their legs. It was so fast. It would wash them downstream. Little sheep. Mommy! You know, just wash down the river. Sheep do not want to go by raging rivers. They will not go drink from Cripple Creek. They want still waters, calm and peaceful waters, of course, and that's where the shepherd brings them. What's the saying that says you can trust God? He's not going to take you to places that will sweep you away and break you down and destroy you. Oh, he, may, he might break you down, but he's going to rebuild you. He's going to heal you. He's not going to destroy you. He's a healer. Some of you think God is dangerous and you're afraid of him in the wrong way. You don't have a proper fear of the Lord. You don't want to read his Bible because you don't trust him. You think he's going to take away the good things from you. He's going to hurt you. He's only going to take away what you don't need. He's only going to take away what hurts you so that he can give you what you really need in its place. He will take you to still waters. He will refresh and satisfy you. And as C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, maybe you've read it, maybe you've seen the movie, he said, Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure, Jesus, the good shepherd, he's not just a shepherd, he's a lion. And what does he say? Aslan is not safe. Not safe. But he's what? Good. Lions are not safe, but this lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, is good. God will lead you to the places you need to be. You can trust Him. He's not a safe God, but He will treat you with kindness and grace. If you're His child, if you humble yourself before Him and trust His Word, He'll take you where you need to be. And He restores my soul. 
He restores my soul. Now, some of you think the soul is like some invisible thing, which it is. I've never seen my soul. It's like the heart of you, who you really are, your, your deepest place. But it also just could mean generically your life, just who you are, your person, your life. So to restore your soul, it might mean something like he, he turns your heart towards him in repentance, like we saw in Psalm 19 last week. Remember that? The law of Yahweh is perfect. It restores the soul. It revives the soul. It restores where you need to be. It turns you away from those idols of greed and of fear and of comfort, and it turns you back to Christ, who heals you and revives you and gives you new life. Amen? Amen. The real you is not the you that you're familiar with. You're only familiar with the partial real you. You have parts of yourself that God's working on right now, but you're not going to look like this in 20 years. Your heart is going to be much better, I hope. If you're a Christian, it will be more holy, more Christ-like. When you die, you're going to be changed radically and completely. You're going to be glorified into the image of Christ. And I'll have a whole new body, a whole new mind. You won't look the same or act the same or think the same. This is not the real you right now. This is the work in progress. This is the rehab like a few weeks into it. You've got to wait for the finished product. God's doing something in your life. He's restoring your life. Like you restore an old building like we did here with the old pool hall. He's restoring you. You're not your own, Jesus says. You've been bought with a price. And you can say, I'm not only not my own, but I'm not even myself right now. It's Christ who lives in me. That's where my real hope is. That's who I really am. And I'm trying to catch up with who Jesus is. I'm trying to become more and more a child of the King. So... Stop thinking that this is good enough. You can be content with your circumstances. Don't be content with yourself, though. Don't just say, well, I've come far enough. I know enough of the Bible. I come to church and I do that thing. That's fine. I'm just going to coast from here. That's, that's the fake you. That's not the real you. That's the partial you. That's the mini you. That's the immature you. Grow in Christ. Mature. Let him restore your life and restore your soul. Psalm 119 the largest psalm of the Bible, the very last verse, Psalm 119, verse 176, says, as David prays, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. I've gone astray. I want to come back. I want to return. Seek me, Lord. I'm lost. I need you. I need you to teach me who I really am through your commandments, through your gospel, through Christ in me. He restores our soul and He leads us in paths of what? Come on, say it. It's a scary place, right? Paths of righteousness. I mean, paths of righteousness don't sound very fun, do they? Like, ah, that means I'm going to have to give up some stuff. I'm going to have to stop those sins that I like so much. I'm going to have to give up some of those secret things that people don't even know about, but God knows. And to lead me in a path of righteousness is not easy. Jesus said it was a narrow road. The road that leads to life is a narrow road, and few find it. The, the road that leads to death is so broad and wide that everybody's going down that superhighway. It's like six lanes. Everybody's just cruising down. There's no traffic jam. It's easy. But the road that leads to life, uphill, cur- curvy, traffic jam. You keep sliding back. You can move, move a little bit forward, make some distance, a couple steps back. It's just it's difficult. People make it difficult for you. Satan makes it difficult for you. God makes it difficult for you. He's testing you. He's trying you. Think, what will you do? Will you depend on him? Will you follow that path of righteousness that he's leading you on? 
Or is he going to look behind and say, where'd you go? Where'd you go, Marcel? Yeah, you were right there. Where'd you go, Derek? You were so close to me. Gun, dude, what happened? We were going together, and then all of a sudden, I saw you just trying to... He's going to, he's going to be a good shepherd. He's going to get you back on the path. We'll talk about it in just a second. But you have to understand, he's leading you. The question is, are you following him? I mean, this is a simple but really deep question. It's a hard question. Are you following the good shepherd as he leads you in paths of righteousness? Are you saying, yes, Jesus, I know what you're calling me to. I've heard it so many times. Now I'm going to actually do something about it. I'm going to follow you down the path of righteousness. So much for doing my own thing and getting my own jollies and having my own hormones pumped and stroked all the time. I want to do something righteous for a change. Are you actually following Jesus as he calls you down this path of righteousness? John chapter 10, verses 3 to 4, Jesus says, The sheep hear the shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, just like I've done with some of you. Alex, Augustus, Serena, Cynthia, and he's calling you by name. Casey, Deborah, Lizzie, Emily, Dante. He's calling us by name. And he leads them out. Leads them out of the darkness. Leads them out of the wastelands. He leads them into truth and into life. When he has brought out all his own sheep, he goes before them, and his sheep follow him, for they know his voice. I mean, if you're eager to follow him right now, if you're saying, yes, teach me, Jesus, where we're going next, what do I need to let go of and push behind me so that I can follow you? Then that means you're hearing his voice through his word. If you don't really care what I'm saying right now, if you're like, I'm, I'm good, I'm good right where I am. I don't need to change, I don't need to improve. I'm certainly not going to follow what you're saying, Pastor, or any of these people. I'm not going to follow Jesus because I'm already good enough. If that's what you're saying, then you have to ask yourself, are you really one of his sheep? It says here, his sheep do know his voice and they follow him. That's how it works. They follow him wherever he goes. And they do it not just for their own sake, because this is a really great thing for us to follow him in paths of righteousness. We grow, we become the real us, but it's also for his name's sake, David says. He leads us for his own name's sake. It's not just so that people say, man, what an awesome Christian you are. Good job. Pat on the back. You know? Slap a medal on your chest. Put a star on your Sunday school chart like they used to do back in the day, you know? Good job. I'm impressed. I'm going to applaud you, you wonderful Christian. Oh, Christians are not going to get very much applause these days in America, I can tell you that. Less and less. We're not going to get applause. We don't need applause. We need to be righteous for his name's sake. For his name's sake. He has tied his reputation to your behavior and to your holiness. He's got a lot at stake here. God's name and his reputation are directly connected to your life, to your godliness, to your holiness. If you're not living a righteous life, Man, I mean, I don't like people gossiping about me. None of us do, right? But what are they going to say about you if you're not living for Christ, but you call yourself a Christian? You're going to be gossiping about God, and His name will be dishonored among us because of the way we're living. But God ties His reputation to you and says, I will make sure that my people will grow. They will change. I've... It's not like he believes in you, because I believe in you. You can do it. Yeah, you're, I, I saw you from the very beginning. You had that special glint in your eye, that gleam. You were better than everyone else. That's not what God does. He says, I believe in myself. 
I care about my glory, and because I care about what people think of me among the nations, I'm going to make sure that you, my people, my church, gets it. I'm going to sanctify you through and through. First Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to sanctify your spirit, your soul, and your body. Through and through, I will see to it because I'm faithful. And the one who calls you, the good shepherd, will do it. Praise God that he will lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The question is, are you following him, though? Are you following him? Now, from declaring about God's provision, we're going to look briefly at the last two, his protection and his presence. The protection of this shepherd king, he's got a rod and a staff, and they comfort us. Now, so far the psalm seems pretty good. Pretty easy, pretty comfortable. And this is why it makes the, the Hallmark cards. It's a very comforting song. But now we're starting to get some real talk. He's keeping it real right here. He's saying, now I'm going to walk through the valley of what? The shadow of death. This is not fun, exciting, or easy. This is dark, frightening, and deadly. What he's saying is, imagine the, the ancient world with, you know, in the Middle East, there are these desert places, and, and some of you might have been there or seen movies, but there are these things called wadis, and they're deep channels cut out in the rock by rushing, raging waters that just, or, you know, uh, flash floods that come seasonally through, through Israel and through that region. And these deep places have these steep canyon walls, and the shepherd would often lead the sheep through these deep places where the walls were high and the sun would sometimes be hiding behind the canyon walls, and there'd be predators waiting, you know, above, looking down this good vantage point upon these tasty-looking sheep down there, these, you know, wolves or maybe cougars or whatever kind of animals, and they will pounce from above and just destroy the sheep. This is a fearful thing for sheep to walk through the valley of the shadow. In the Hebrew word, it's just one word, uh, the shadow of death, it's just one word, and it means something like the deadliest or darkest shadowy place. It's, it's like the deadliest shadows of where we're about to go into. Think about like the worst neighborhoods you can imagine walking through late at night, all alone, in the alley, and suddenly two guys are in the front of you walking towards you, and three guys in the back, and you're, you're trapped. And there's no way to get out. All the garage doors are closed, and all the gates are locked. You're surrounded. You see a memorial right on the side, some stuffed animals, maybe a couple tequila bottles. Someone was shot there recently. There's a poster with the date. It's like, oh boy. What have I got myself into? This is the valley of the shadow of death. But he says, even then, even though that's where I'm walking, I will fear no evil. I mean, even if Satan himself is charging at me and grabs me by the throat, I really don't have to be afraid. I don't have to fear any evil. Why? What's the reason? Tell me. Because you are with me. I'm not afraid because you're with me. I got God in this alley. I got God in this valley. I got God at death's doorstep. I got God on my hospital bed. I got God with a gun to my head. I got God with me right now. Who, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 27 says. I'll fear no evil. Amen. God is my bodyguard. Whitney Houston had nothing on what we've got. God is my bodyguard. Oh, he's so strong and awesome. There's evil in our world. There's evil. It's all around us. But God is with us. If you fear God, you don't have to fear anybody else. God says, you can fear me, and you can just 
forget everybody else. I'm the one that won't just destroy your body, but I can destroy your soul. But if you fear me and trust me, I will revive your soul. I'll protect my own. You can fear no evil. Because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The, the rod, remember Psalm 2? The, the, the Lord's anointed Messiah King, the Christ, he has a rod, which is a king's scepter. It's like a short little royal scepter. And it's made of what? Iron. Unbreakable. Smash and crushes his enemies with it. When the sheep are under his authority and control, he smashes the wolves and the enemies with this rod, this, this rod of iron, this scepter. The shepherd would drive away the coyotes and the wolves and the cougars and the, the snakes. <coughs> no doubt David probably had a rod himself when he was a shepherd back in the day. <coughs> and remember, he, de- he de- defeated the lion and the bear, saving his sheep from these animals, the Bible says. He probably did it with his rod. He might have thrown it at them and hit them right between the eyes like he did Goliath. I'm not sure exactly how he did it, but he had a rod and he also had a staff. Something else about the rod. <clears throat> you guys ever seen the movie Taken with Liam Neeson? Yeah. Taken one, two, and three. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Taken one, you know, the one that most had the, the the one that had the most impact on my life as a father of four girls. I, I like Liam Neeson, and I really like him in that movie. And I, I just, I, I really need to memorize this, but I'm going to read it to you. This little dialogue here. You've taken my daughter. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you, I don't have money, but what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will make not one, not two, but three blockbuster movies about what I will do to you. God has a rod. Do you hear me? God has a rod and a very particular set of skills for protecting his people. Comforts me. Comforts me to know that that's my God. Another use of the rod was in the shepherd's hand to examine or count the sheep. There's a phrase called passing under the rod, which Ezekiel 20 talks about. And I will cause you to pass under the rod and will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I'm going to count you. I'm going to protect you. You're going to be Connected to me by covenant of love. So he's going to hold his rod over you. You're going to, he's going to count you with it. He's going to search and examine you with it. It's not a scary thing for the sheep to be searched by the shepherd. He's just trying to make sure we don't have any ticks or fleas or wounds under our fluffy wool. A thorough examination is what God wants to give to each of us. To search us. To know us. To see if there's any offensive way in us. To know our thoughts and our inmost being. The rod of God our shepherd comforts us. Then there's the staff, the shepherd's crook, the longer stick with a hook on it, where he could, you know, get a preacher who's preaching too long a sermon off the stage, or a sheep out of trouble, out of danger, put him back on the path, or her back in the flock. Correcting our missteps, leaving the 99 to go get that one sheep, he uses the staff to bring the sheep back. When the sheep is hanging by the little hooks off the cliff, he can use that staff to rescue the sheep. Correction is comforting to the sheep. Don't let me go astray. Seek me. 
according to your command, Psalm 119 says, it's comforting to know that he has a staff that he'll whack me with every now and then and gently push me over this way so I don't fall off the edge or stray down the wrong path. I want to walk in the path of righteousness. Give me a little whack every now and then. I wish I had a long staff and I could just like reach out and whack some of you guys when you fall asleep. I would love a staff that long. It would take some time to build it, but that's all i got is time. Yes. Discipline is security. Discipline is security. It's comforting to know that God will guard me and guide me. He'll protect me from the enemies, but also direct me from my own sins. He'll provide safety, but also sanctification. He'll help me when I'm in trouble, but he'll also make me holy. It comforts me. Isaiah 40 says, comfort, comfort my people, because the Lord is mighty. With his mighty arms, he will take the young, nursing lambs, and he will hold them close to his heart. Comforting to know how strong and awesome and loving our God is. And then finally, the presence of the Lord is what's highlighted here in Psalm 23. The presence of the Lord. In Psalm 23, verses 5 through 6, the shepherd image changes to that of a king, host, someone that's really, really rich and has a lot to offer. He's got a feast, he's got a table, he's got a lavish spread for you and I. He's still seen as our protector now because he's providing this table for us in the wilderness in the presence of who? Our enemies. You see the enemies. They're looking through the windows, wishing they could come in. Or maybe they're like in captive chains because we've defeated them. God has conquered them and now they're sitting there watching us eat the feast. I don't know exactly what the image is, but it's the enemies are around us and we are feasting comfortably protected in the presence of our king, our shepherd king, in the presence of enemies. Once again, let's just keep it real. We have enemies. I sure hope we don't have any enemies in this room. If we do, we need to work that out. But we have enemies. They're out there. They're out there. You should work that out to the best of your ability too. You should go and be reconciled. But for those that you can't be reconciled with, you just have done all you can and they still won't hear it. They won't be your friend or your brother, or your sister, God says, I've got a table for you. It's okay. Move on. Move on. I've got something for you that far outweighs that. Now, I met a woman this week, and my role as chaplain in Army Reserve, whose name is, well, I won't tell you her name. She's a, a young woman who got married a few years ago, and she was having uh, family issues. She's from another culture, and in this culture, apparently, it was okay for her in-laws, her husband's parents, to put a curse on her. They put a curse on her body and said, you will never have children because we don't want you to be part of this family. Her first child was a miscarriage. The baby died. And she said, I think I'm cursed. I think they've cursed me. She said, I don't know if I'll ever have kids. She also has something in her uterus that was removed this past week, maybe cancerous. She said, this might be part of the curse. What do you think I told this woman? You think I said, oh, well, man, curses are, what can I do? I mean, I'm not a witch. I'm not a witch doctor. I don't, I, I don't have any formula or potion to apply to you. I don't have any pulses I can, like, mash up and, like, smear on you. I don't have any face paint I can put on you or chicken uh, parts or wings that I can, like, dance around you with. I don't, I don't know what to do with a curse. What do you think I said? I said, there was a curse in the beginning. Adam and Eve in the garden. God cursed the whole world. Okay, we're all cursed. You know what I'm saying? We're all cursed. But then this, this perfect man came along, the good shepherd. You know what he did? He broke the curse. He, he, in his own body, on the tree, Galatians 3 says, bore the curse for us. He paid for the curse. 
with every nail stroke in the spirit aside, and when he gave up his last breath, his death paid the curse, reversed the curse upon this world, the curse is being broken down and piece by piece stripped away. And in the end, guess what? In Revelation, it says in the end of the Bible, there's going to be no more curse. Amen. Now, we're not a people of the curse. Why are we go around cursing all the time? Cursing other people? We're people of the blessing. We're people of life. I told this woman, I said, God has blessed you with life and His Word is life and His Word is much stronger than any other word that can come against you. Not a word or a weapon formed against you will prosper. You have the promise of God on your side. Their curses will just fall by the wayside at one breath of the Good Shepherd speaking over you, His child. In the presence of our enemies, we have life, we have strength, we have a table spread. Revelation 12 says, We will overcome the dragon, Satan, and his accusations against us by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimonies. Not a word, not an enemy, not any trial will stand against you. We will overcome. We are more than overcomers, Romans 8 says. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. Neither height nor depth nor in-laws can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Amen. You anoint my head with oil. Now this probably isn't the anointing of a king who's about to serve as king or a prophet being anointed to serve as prophet. This probably just means a lavish uh, perfuming. I came to your house. You're my host. You've got this table spread. So it's like the, the sinful woman came into Jesus' dinner party with the tax collectors and she did well with that perfume bottle. She smashed it and she poured it all over his feet and washed those feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She anointed him with oil and perfume and spices and he said, this is beautiful. Preparing me for my burial. This is going to be preached wherever the gospel is preached. That's why I'm saying it right now. Give her her credit. She anointed the Lord's feet. And God says, I will anoint you with oil. I will anoint your head with rich, lavish oils and perfumes and grace. I will love you. No matter what your enemies put on your head or put on your reputation, it's going to all be washed away when I anoint you and bless you with my work, with my grace. Amen. We have this table spread in the wilderness. We're not in the promised land yet. We're still in Woodlawn. We're still in Chicago. We're still in this world full of enemies. But there's a table. There's anointing right here in the midst of it. Little beautiful snatches of heaven. Little pictures. Little glimpses of what is to come. You know, in my house, sometimes I tell my kids when we hear the gunshots all around us, or my wife says, man, you know, all these people, all this crisis, all this drama, you know, we can hear it all day long through the windows. And, you know, whether it's uh, loud music or people yelling and screaming at each other, people literally throwing bleach on each other in, in front of our house, people shooting each other. I mean, that's going on all around us. But as long as we've got our home somewhat in order, you know, we have some yelling and some screaming and some anger and some needs for forgiveness in our home, but as long as we've got each other, as long as we've got our table, we can sit out at the end of the day, catch up, pray for each other, hear each other's burdens, share each other's burdens, then we're going to be okay. As long as we, the church... Have this table, this communion right here that we're going to take in just a little bit. As long as we have this body and blood of Jesus, as long as we have the relationship with each other, the love, we're going to be okay. The enemies can be all around. They can be surrounding the church right now with torches and pitchforks and guns. And we, we're, we're good. we got the table spread by the king himself. we got each other. We're family. We're going to be okay. Because God says, I will pursue you all the days of your life with goodness and mercy. He doesn't just say, I'm going to follow you with goodness and mercy. I'm going to pursue you as the word. strong. 
I'm going to chase after you. I'm going to track you down like a state trooper. When you're going too fast on the highway, he's going to track you down. But it's not so he can hurt you. He wants to say, slow down. Don't kill yourself. Don't kill someone else. Slow down. His goodness and his mercy will follow us wherever we wander a sheep, and he will catch us and grab us and bring us home for our own good and for his glory. It's like a parent saying to the child, get off that railing. You're about to fall out of the window. What are you doing too close to the fire? Don't touch the stove. I mean, we're going to track our children down. We're going to chase them down. We're going to bring them back to safety. This is our God. He's a good father. He's a good shepherd. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That might sound kind of boring to you. All the days of my life? (laughs) Like forever and ever? Really? Eternity? I'm never going to leave? I'd like to explore a little bit, you know? I'd like to get out and see the world. You, you will. You have plenty of time to explore the new heavens and new earth. Just think of the image, though, how beautiful it is. Hopefully it's beautiful to you like it is to me. Don't you love to be in the house of God with his people? Yeah. Don't you love to worship God? Yeah. I mean, if that's a beautiful thing, then what an awesome ending to the psalm, the greatest psalm, the most well-beloved psalm. I'm always going to be in your house with your people, always in your presence, always at that place where there's an altar, where a sacrifice is made to forgive my sins. I'm going to be in that place where your presence is always dwelling. Your glory is there. I'm going to always be in a place of satisfaction and abundant life. Like Psalm 36 says, your children take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. That's God's house. A place of greatest satisfaction and joy. He's offered that to us. We're going to close today by playing a little audio soundtrack back there. Zeon's got my back. I just rewrote Psalm 23 with like a little bit of a twist to kind of put it in modern language. I did this the other day on the plane ride coming back home. I hope you will let this familiar song take on more of a, an application. Um, it's a Southside remix of Psalm 23. And when I'm finished, we're going to go right to communion, so don't, don't get too hyped up or anything. We're just going to talk it through with some modern words, and then we're going to go to the Lord's table and feast on our Lord. Amen. Can we start from the top? There we go. Yahweh is my shepherd on these streets, my loving father, a very wealthy king, a wise ancient warrior who has a very special set of skills. The hood sounds like hell so often, but God's dropping tracks of heaven in this place. By his grace, I'm learning to be content 24-7. He sits me in a lawn chair of Sabbath rest when all around me is hectic stress and busyness. I can't run the streets constantly. Shalom's at home with Christ. Peace from my weary feet, finally. His truth is like whole foods at all the prices. A buffet in this undergrown food desert. He satisfies my hunger and thirst for righteousness. The way you do the things you do better than the temptation. That's old school right there. Like a reverse, I smoke purification filter on every faucet, curse reverse, not even a hint of flint, every soul flint. He leads me to beachfront private property and living water with another broken glass. He turns away my soul from idols of flesh and fear and pleasure. He restores peace in my panic attacks. 
His word is my GPS, his spirit my brain this, and those whole roads go to this with potholes, and some of us get carjacked and car sick. God pays for our parking tickets, shows us the rush hour in another way, an hour to pray. And then neither traffic nor sin will stop us from arriving home safely. The more he does for me, his reputation blown up, his glory is going viral, that's what's up. Yeah, even though I dig through the darkest alley with gangster beatings up, animals with candles and empty bottles with tequila signs of death in my city, I don't fear no evil because the Holy Spirit is with me and in me. I put on a bulletproof vest of my soul, the armor of God in Christ, my own private security staff, and the rod of God, it comforts me. The king sees proper, but carries a big scepter, a royal crowbar, you can say, and still gives me a curfew and guardrail, like bumpers in the bowling alley, to keep me out of the gutter. My tattoo says property of Mama on one arm, bought with a price, not my own on the other. Whatever happens with Obamacare, my father has lavished his benefits and life insurance is spared, enrolled me in a good school, and will see me through graduation, stable employment, to retirement. He refills my coffee mug and overfills my life with an overstock of good to share, I can't lie. His tendency to tendency make foolish fellows jealous, though enemies stalk me, talking smack to me on social media and other media, like through my windows, like they're trying to make my wife a widow. My Lord makes sure that I get home by dinner time and for our daily debrief and some delicious meal. Gourmet soul food for real. You better clean to see that the Lord is good. And on top of that, get yourself a good wife like me. Alright, you. Here we go. Last line, here we go. Every time I turn away or run away or fall down, his goodness and mercy out of my trail every day, stalking with the best possible methods. Not everything I want, but everything I need. I will never be evicted from the church family, but the Lord has given me a copy of the key to heaven's front door to get of the crucified and risen Lord, the reigning ruler of heaven and earth. And what's more, I'm on the VIP list. And we're all lit. God has left the light on for us. So I've moved all my belongings into God's house. And my heart is his home forever. And his people, my people, for just as long. Amen? Amen. He said it, and it's as good as done. Amen? Amen. All right. You don't need to clap. Let's, let's stand up and receive, let's stand and receive the Lord's gift to us, the communion table. Those that are helping serve, would you please come forward?